Let me read God's Word to James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Amen. Patient perseverance under persecution. When last we were in James, we looked at the persecution of the poor under the hands of the rich. As a reminder, the book of James has been all about being perfect, complete, whole, consistent in our faith, not mingling the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God, pointing back to the Garden of Eden where the fall of man was precipitated by man choosing to listen to his own wisdom, taking matters into his own hands, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that he could determine for himself right and wrong in reality. And this is folly and rebellion, what the Bible calls sin. Our behaviors and our individual acts of sin have their root in that pride. And James says in the sermonic peak of the letter, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so humbling ourselves before God means bowing our knee to His Word. How appropriate that the Gideons are here this morning. You can't bow your knee to the Word if you don't have the Word in your hands. Two weeks ago we looked at three rotten fruits that come from substituting the Word of God for man's Word. Slander, presumptuous planning and oppression of the poor. Why slander? Because when we substitute the law of God and the judgment of God with our own version of the law and make ourselves the judge, then we find others around us guilty and we slander, we speak untruth about their character. Secondly, when we substitute God's sovereignty with our own sovereignty, we become presumptuous planners. We go about our day, planning our own day, leaving God out of the mix, determining, oh, I'll go here or there, I'll go to this city, I'll do business, I'll turn a profit, make lots of money, buy stuff, be happy. This is the American way, this is man's way, this is a purposeless, selfish material life that Solomon in Ecclesiastes called vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Then we'll take slander and presumptuous planning and combine it together to oppress the poor. We'll slander them and assume they're poor because of their own sin. They got themselves into this situation, and sometimes, indeed, that is the case. But are we not all poor outside of Christ? 
We bring nothing to the table, nothing to the foot of the cross. We're completely spiritually bankrupt, destitute, impoverished. We need the grace of God to make us rich in Christ. Now, I didn't want to tell you this two weeks ago. I was saving it for today. Because I didn't want to let anybody off the hook. For all I know, there is a rich oppressor in our midst. I don't know your financial position. We do that on purpose in the church. I have no idea what you give, how much you earn. I don't know how you conduct your business at work. If you're a business owner, I don't know how you treat your employees. It's human nature to assume we are not the rich. We like to fancy ourselves the poor so we don't feel the sting of greed and selfishness. And even more so, we like to fancy ourselves the victim of some kind of oppression, especially this time of year around tax season. I mean, do we not drive on the roads and does not our military protect us? So we pay taxes. Our tax bill was rather hefty this year. And then on top of it, that, that fire tax bill came. I know they're supposed to be spreading those things out, but ours is due the same time our regular taxes are due. You're like, come on, this is oppression. But my house is in a heavily wooded area, Bear Valley, and I'm sure glad that if fire strikes, a helicopter or a plane will dump water on my house, and I'm sure those things are not cheap. I'm guessing. And that's the way insurance works. You hope you never have to use it, but you sure pay a lot for it. I figure we have enough firemen in here that the $500 I'm paying will come back to the church. (laughs) It's also human nature that when it's convenient for us, we do like to consider ourselves rich when it means we can hobnob with the important people, the movers and shakers. So when it's convenient, we're rich. When it's inconvenient, we're the poor oppressed. And so I gave us some things to think about how that passage in James could directly apply to us here in our, our very wealthy Western society. Compared to the rest of the world, we're all rich. And in a global economy, it's hard to see the oppression of the poor. Get outside America and you will see the oppression of the poor. Talk to Susan Donkles, who just returned from the Philippines. She'll tell you some stories. But let me at least leave it at this. Every day you expect and I expect to have my high quality but cheap coffee, chocolate, clothes, cars, and other stuff. And I really don't want to know who made it, under what working conditions. I want cheap, organic, fresh fruit on my table. I don't want to know who labored to pick it and under what conditions. And so it's easy to shield ourselves from the oppression of the poor, and indirectly we may be contributing to the oppression of the poor. 
Ignorance is no excuse, though. I know it gets to the point, though, where you're like, I can't buy anything. So we're not going there. But we can't go to the other end of the pendulum either and just say, I don't want to know, don't care. Another particular area that is kind of a powder keg, and we're not going to get political from the pulpit, but we understand the whole health care crisis and not a fan of the Affordable Care Act, though I'm a fan of affordable care. Certainly we can do better, but it wasn't really a concern of mine when I was a teacher. I had the best health care insurance plan you could imagine. Praise God, four C-sections in six years, paid for, never saw a bill. Well, we saw it, you know, but you're like, wow, is that what that costs? And then it says, you know, your responsibility, zero. Somebody had to pay for it. And then we went to seminary, and we used COBRA to keep our insurance for a few months, but it was $750 a month to keep that kind of insurance. And after a while in seminary, we just could not afford it anymore. So we switched our kids to Medi-Cal. And my daughter broke her arm, compound fracture. Our kids break their arms. I know. Don't call, don't call CPS. It just, it just seems to happen. Compound fracture, bones overlapping. Start calling orthopedic pediatric surgeons. Nobody would give us an appointment. Nobody. And we're like, no, you don't understand. We're the, we're the good people. We're just temporary. Sorry. He said, this thing needs to be set. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be deformed. Well, you need to go to Children's Hospital and there's like a three-week wait list to see an orthopedist. And you're like, how could this be? And you start seeing how the rest of the world lives. And all your political views go out the window when it's your own baby. Amen? So be careful how you judge those who come into our country. I know it's illegal. I know that rubs you the wrong way. But many are looking for a better life for their children, health care. Again, political views go out the window when your child is suffering. Certainly there's better answers politically, and we won't talk about them in the pulpit. We'll figure it out through the process. But compassion and mercy is always the starting place in God's economy. By the way, how'd the story turn out? It turns out... Our insurance, you have a one-month kind of cooling-off period when you cancel your insurance. We called Pacific Care. They said, hey, write a check, put it in the mail. You have your insurance back. We did. Called the same doctor that just told us no. They didn't even remember our voice. Do you have insurance? Yes, Pacific Care, PPO. Oh, we can get you in today. Get you in today. Oh, and by the way, we ended up with the number two orthopedic pediatric orthopedist specialist in the country. Praise God for his mercy and compassion. Very old man, probably had reset 500,000 bones in his life and had lost all bedside manner. 
But he was good at what he did. And I thank God for it. James is probably, when he's preaching against the oppression of the poor, was not talking about the rich in his own assembly. There, I said it. But you had two weeks to think, well, maybe I'm that rich person. If I told you two weeks ago he probably wasn't preaching against anybody in the assembly, we would have just ignored the whole teaching. Because that's human nature. I don't like to be rebuked. Oh, he's not rebuking me. He's rebuking someone else. Well, okay. What preachers will often do is when there's a sin, a very public sin, like the oppression of the poor, you preach against it in the assembly as if the rich were sitting here. Even though the people you want to hear are not actually there hearing it, what it does is it proclaims God's truth publicly. It guards our heart from becoming the rich oppressors. And it encourages the oppressed that God knows this is going on. And justice will be served eventually. You can take that to the bank. And so that's probably what James was doing in that case. Because he goes as far to say that the rich were persecuting the poor in the courts, bribing the judges to persecute the poor, and even taking their life, their lives. Remember, and he says, You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not even resist you. We said that pointed to Christ. But probably this was not going on directly in James's churches. And so, we're going to talk this morning about persecution coming against the church because it will come. It always comes. It's happening all over the globe and we are seeing it creep into America at alarming speed. Freedoms being stripped away. Freedom of religion being replaced with freedom of worship, which is completely different, my brothers and sisters, completely different. Freedom of worship is you can do whatever you want inside your church, but don't bring it outside the walls into the public arena. And then once they take that away, then they'll go after freedom of worship. Then they'll start telling you how to worship. And then they'll say, don't assemble anymore. But it starts with taking away this freedom of religion. They're, in essence, telling us to do exactly what James is telling us not to do. Don't compartmentalize your life. Don't have one set of rules here in the church and then go outside and practice what the world practices. That's what the world wants from us. God is saying that is not what a, a believer, that's not how we operate. We need to be whole, complete, consistent. Don't mix the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God. So what do we do when this persecution comes? The answer is 
somewhat surprising to me. It's not a fight back. It's keep living your life for Christ and proclaiming Christ. Oh, sure, as much as we can, we will use the political system to put Christians in the place of authority. Paul said to pray for our leaders, that they would convert. But we don't stop with the Lord's business if the world is saying stop. Because we're not of this world and we're not of this kingdom and we keep living according to the new kingdom in which we find ourselves, the kingdom of our Lord. And so James is going to give us three commands we must follow under persecution. Number one, we are going to patiently wait on the Lord. Patiently wait on the Lord. Don't take matters into your own hands. Patiently wait on the Lord. James 5, 7, Therefore, be patient. Macro thumea. Macro, large, thumea, suffering, long, suffering, large, suffering. Put up with a lot. Brothers, until the coming of the Lord, this, this word coming refers to the second coming of Christ. He will return. He said he will return. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. You can't make the produce come up by worrying and being anxious, by yelling at the ground, the gra- grow! It's a beautiful analogy. You, you, you plant and then you're patient. Until it gets the early and late rains, the former and latter rains. We understand this. We get rain in late fall and early spring and that's it. And sometimes not even then, like the last three years. And there's really nothing we could do about it. We can't make it rain. In James's day and age, the false religions tried to make it rain by twisting the arm of their idols, trying to appease them, anything it would take to get it to rain. I know with our modern irrigation, we could still turn on the tap and we get water, although I'm told maybe not even that, if this keeps up. But they couldn't do anything about it. They just had to wait for rain. If the rain didn't come, the crops didn't grow. Patiently wait on the Lord. He will return. And you can't make him return any day sooner than he's scheduled. In fact, what did Jesus say? The Son of Man doesn't even know the day of his return. But he will return. So patiently wait on the Lord in the face of persecution. It won't be on our timetable. You've, you've found this to be the case during your trials. You say, okay, I've learned what I need to learn, God. Now turn the trial off. doesn't work that way. But again, what a wonderful illustration we have from, from the Amados today. She said, 
I went to the hospital, this is her seventh child, thinking I would just have another baby. And God had this wonderful, amazing thing planned. I just could not use those adjectives. But it's true. It was a wonderful, amazing thing. She got through it just fine. Baby got through it fine. And God was glorified in a way that he wouldn't have been glorified if it was a run-of-the-mill childbirth. From what I hear, is no picnic either. But this was certainly scary. And yet, the peace of God washed over them. We can expect that same peace of God that passes all human understanding to wash over us when persecution comes. And it will come. John fifteen seventeen. Christians should expect persecution. Jesus said, This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Right? If you acted and lived like the world and believed like the world, they'd leave you alone. You'd be one of them. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He's speaking to the eleven. But by extension, we would understand that if we preach and proclaim the word of God, persecution will come. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No might, no maybe, no possibly, will be persecuted on some level. Persecution comes when Christians won't give approval to sin. Say, why the persecution? Why the persecution? I don't get it. Jesus is so wonderful, and the gospel's amazing. It's the good news. It changed my life. I can't wait to tell people. Why are people responding with such animosity to the point of death? The very words that give us life and give meaning to life and give us hope and joy, inexpressible to others, is worse than nails on a chalkboard. The aroma of life unto life to those who are being saved and death unto death to those who reject the gospel. It reeks to them. Romans 128, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's what's happening. Apart from God, apart from His Word, apart from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, God gives you over to a depraved mind. Okay, you want to think the way you want to think? Go right ahead. To those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Beloved, we are entering into times in our country where if you do not give hearty approval to these, these things, you will be persecuted. They've been throwing tolerance at us for decades. But tides are changing. They're not going to settle for tolerance. To tolerate something is to put up with something negative or unpleasant. They don't want to be told that their behavior is negative, sinful, unpleasant. They not only want you to tolerate, but you now must celebrate, embrace, hold up high as an example of the enlightened way to live life. We're starting to see this in the news, you know, bakers and photographers and being fined or losing their businesses if they don't participate in that which the Lord forbids. Persecution comes when the light of Christ shines in the darkness. It's like a dark kitchen filled with cockroaches and the light shines and everybody scatters. Turn off the light. They don't want the light of Christ. It's so perverse and paradoxical because as the light of Christ is hidden, society crumbles, it implodes, it self-destructs. We don't want Jesus in the schools. But then the schools fall apart and they, they get mad at everybody else and don't realize the correlation between the breakdown of society and the elimination of God from the public sphere. In Him was life. In, in Christ was life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks me will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. He came, God incarnate, the Word incarnate came to shine light on the world, to shine light on our evil deeds and our wrong thinking. This is reality, Jesus said. This is the way, the truth, and the life. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Why not? Because he came and shined the light on their evil deeds, their hypocrisy. So somebody needs to turn this light off, and they tried to extinguish the light. They put him on a cross, but the light came bursting forth from the tomb. Amen? Praise God. You cannot extinguish the light. They're going to try everything they can. Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Nobody lights a lamp and hides it under a basket, right? That's ridiculous. We are not to hide our light under a basket to avoid persecution. We are a shining city on a hill, a beacon, a lighthouse, so to speak, to warn 
others of destruction and show them the way to safety. If you don't want persecution, you'll have to live the way the world lives and think the way the world thinks. And then all is lost. Persecution comes in stages, just so you know. It always starts with mocking. Oh, you Christians. You're so antiquated. Old-fashioned. You believe in this old book written by men that's riddled with errors. You don't understand science. You're intellectually deficient. You're, you're idiots. And on it goes. And then the marginalization happens. Push the Christians to the margin of society. You can sit in your churches, but stay away from the sciences, the arts. If mocking doesn't work, then we move to economic pressure. Let's hit them in their wallets. Well, that's a good thing when it comes, beloved, because that'll test our faith. See if it's real. I can handle mocking, but take my money and... We're going to see uh, fines. Perhaps losing our 5013C status. Our tax-exempt status. That's probably coming down the pike next. Over-regulation. Start seeing oppression through inspectors, regulators. Years ago, as a fairly new believer, I wanted to leave the normal classroom, the regular public school classroom and move to a position where I could reach out to wayward kids. It was a a residential program where the kids would live on campus, work a job on campus, and do their schooling on campus. I was so excited about it, and the interviewer was excited for me, and they, they had no other applicants, you could imagine. Sounds like pretty hard work. And she said, oh, there's one more interview. It's kind of a formality, but you'll get a phone interview from somebody from the district uh, office. And the, the phone interview came, and it was going well. And then they asked me who my hero was, and I said, Jesus Christ is my hero. He saved me. And then the, the questions got less enthusiastic after that, and then the interview wrapped up rather quickly. But I didn't think anything of it. And I didn't hear anything for days and days and days. And finally called the HR department and the HR person said, Oh, yeah, I don't know what's going on. Usually after the phone interview, you come in for your paperwork the next day. Let me check on that. And she came back and her voice was rather sheepish on the phone. She said, I I don't know what happened, but they're looking for another applicant. Did, Did the interview not go well? I'm like, no, it went great. I said, you told me there weren't any other applicants. Why would they be looking for another applicant? And I knew my references checked out. And I, my credential checked out. And I put two and two together. I don't know for sure, but it sure sounds like a little bit of persecution. But here I am. <laughs> here I am. God... Knew he had a whole nother calling and career waiting for me. 
I'm sure you may have experienced something similar. Maybe you didn't even know you were being persecuted. You got passed over for promotion. These things are minor. But we're going to see things escalate here in our country. I'm no prophet or son of a prophet, but I know this because the Bible tells me it'll happen in history, whether it was Israel or the Christian church. It's always the persecution comes. Eventually, we'll see imprisonment and then physical punishment or or death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the father loses his finances, the son loses his freedom, the grandson loses his life. And then the church rebuilds society. And we start over again on the foundation of God's Word, and everything goes great until there's a critical mass of unbelief and apostasy, and in comes the persecution. Again, you can see it in Israel's history. You see it in England's history, the pilgrims coming over here to rebuild a society on the foundation of God's Word, and boy, were things going great. We had a good run, didn't we? People were flocking to come live in this country and and still are. But it feels like we're at that critical mass. Either our country repents as a whole and turns their face back to God or the persecution will begin to increase. And yet we can look at the Psalms and David says to us, commit your way to the Lord in Psalm 37. Trust also in Him and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Whether David is speaking literally or eschatologically, we will, we will inherit the land. We will inherit the kingdom. The persecution will end, whether it's in this life or the next. No persecution in heaven. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So wait patiently for the Lord. Don't take matters into your own hands. Second, confidently expect the Lord. James 5.8, you too, be patient. It's like the fourth time he said, be patient, huh? Who here likes to be patient? No hands. So he's got to tell us over and over and over, be patient, long-suffering. Establish your heart or strengthen your heart. This word strengthen means to establish. How do you establish your heart? You cling to the truth, for the coming of the Lord is near, imminent. You replace anxious thoughts, fretting, worrying, with the truth. I'm in Christ. 
As Paul said, I'm convinced of this, that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And he says that we suffer for a little while compared to the glories of heaven. As I'm sure Tamara and Ross were thinking, little pain, wonderful baby coming. Just for a moment, I can endure this. Coming of the Lord is near. This word coming, parousia, refers to the arrival and presence of a king. The arrival and the presence of a king. And the New Testament writers use this word to describe the imminent return of Christ to judge the wicked and deliver the saints. The persecution will end when our king returns. Whether he returns while I'm still alive or he calls me home and then I'm in the presence of the king, the persecution will end and all those spiritual blessings laid up for us in the heavenly places will be ours in Christ. If you find yourself worrying about the direction our country is headed in, there's cause for concern, but not worry. Not anxiety. Jesus said, how has being anxious ever added a day to your life, right? Today has enough worry of its own. People think they can, we're going to pack up, we're going to move, and we're going to find some hidden enclave somewhere on this earth where there's no persecution. We're running out of places to move to, people. Which is one reason why I think the end is near. The, the coming of the Lord is soon. I know it's soon anyways. But today I think we're closer than we were yesterday. <laughs> You know what I mean. Yeah. The, the, the word is going out. The unreached people groups are being reached. Jesus said when the gospel has gone to the four corners of the world, he'll return. With technology, it's, it's getting there. And when the apostles were persecuted for their faith, they celebrated to count themselves worthy of such an honor to be persecuted in the way the Lord was persecuted. It's not something to be avoided, but it's not something to seek out. It will come. Strengthen your heart. How? Confidently expecting the Lord's return. Thirdly, quietly trust the Lord. Quietly trust the Lord. James 5.9 Do not complain, brethren, against one another. Okay, now we're going from outside persecution to James telling us, be careful that you don't let outward that, that persecution to start tearing us apart inside God's family. Don't let the stress and anxiety and worry of persecution be a temptation for us to complain so that you yourselves may not be judged. We already know that in Christ we've already been justified in Christ. This is a different kind of judging. Believers will be judged. We've talked about this. Will be judged. Not for our justification, but for all the works. And Jesus said every careless word 
There will be an accounting. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Your leaders will have to give an account. That's kind of scary for me. But also encouraging. Have you ever taken a class and there was no grade at the end? No, no reward, no prize, no... You compete and there's a no prize. There's a race and no, no trophy at the end. You work, work, work every day. No pay, no promotion. Oh, that's motherhood. Sorry. <laughs> you have experienced that. Okay. It's exasperating. But what's the reward of motherhood? Is to see your children walking in the Lord and to hear from your Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And this word groaning that I've underlined is the same verb as the word complaining in James. It's not the typical word for complain that we see, like when Paul says to not complain or grumble. It's this idea that you feel like justice isn't being done and you're complaining and groaning and, you know, fix it, make it right. So don't do that with your leaders in the church. And James says, don't complain against one another because you don't want the judge who is standing right at the door to come back and see his family in the midst of complaining and backbiting and grumbling. Our glorious Christ who died for us, imagine him returning a groom for his bride. Could you imagine that? You're the groom standing up here and the doors happen to swing open and you see the bride fighting with the wedding party back there or something. That just kills the whole mood, the whole day, the whole arrival. Do not... Do not complain, don't groan, don't be grumbling against one another. Don't let your frustration with the world's persecution creep into the church. It's small potatoes, people, whatever's going on in here. It's family, we step on toes, we, th- we knock some people with our elbows. We have Matthew 18 to tell us, go in humility and love and talk to your brother Or we can cover in love, because love covers a multitude of sins. But don't start to convince yourself that you're being persecuted inside the church because you were passed over for some ministry leadership position or whatever. I'm being persecuted on Facebook. They didn't like my comment. And you feel like you're being persecuted and you go to the Lord or you go to your leaders and you complain and grumble and say, go fix it, go do something about it. I want justice. You don't want justice. You don't want justice. You want mercy. You want mercy. When we feel like we're the ones being persecuted, we want justice. But when we're the persecutor, we want mercy. So if you want mercy, give mercy. 
I want you to remember that James has been drawing his wisdom from Leviticus 19 and the Sermon on the Mount. So without reading all of this, but make a note to read Leviticus 19, 12 through 18. And I promise as you read through it, you're going to hear all of James. He's hitting on every point in Leviticus 19, 12 through 18. But the underlined portion, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quietly trust the Lord. You keep a humble and a meek and a quiet spirit in the face of persecution, you won't turn on your neighbor. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.38, Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, by the way, only Jesus, the word incarnate, can quote scripture and augment it. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Is he saying that our Father in heaven loves our enemies? You bet. You bet. That's what he's saying. Because we were all, what, at one time? Enemies of God. Does he not cause the sun to rise on the evil and the good? Or does like a, a little black cloud go over the evil people and only we get the sun? And he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Remember this word perfect is whole, complete. Don't be double-minded. Don't be loving towards the brothers and then unloving towards the world. The world already does that. How is anything going to change if we're just a cleaned up version of the world? Blessed is the one who patiently endures trials and persecution. He gives us an example of trials or persecution and then an example of trials. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The Old Testament history is riddled with the prophets speaking out against apostasy and idolatry and unrighteousness and the people not listening and persecuting the prophets. And you're like, where's the rest of the story? When does the persecution end for the prophets? Usually when they died was when the persecution ended. But oh, what... Their reward must be in heaven right now for their faithful proclamation of God's truth. So there we have an example of those who were persecuted who had to wait 
to be in the presence of the Lord before the persecution was lifted. Then we have an example of trials. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now here's a case where somebody patiently persevered and was rewarded here on earth. Job had restored to him manifold what he had lost. And when you think about it, wasn't Job's trial really persecution? Doesn't all persecution come from Satan? The one person who doesn't want us being whole, consistent. Wasn't it Satan in the garden that tempted man to go his own way and think his own thoughts and create his own morality and his own reality? Wasn't it Satan who told God, Job will not bless your name if you allow me to persecute him? Isn't that what's behind all persecution? Get you to turn from Christ. It got too hard. I thought following Christ, life would get easy. I thought I'd be rich and prosperous and have health. And often those things do come with following Christ. But that's not the greatest gift. The greatest gift is Christ himself being with God. So you can rest assured that when persecution comes, it's not so much the people. Our enemies are not the people doing the persecuting. It is the person behind the people. It is Satan. And remember from Job, Satan had to ask permission from God to persecute his people. And God had a purpose in the persecution. That in the crucible of persecution, all the impurities of our faith get burned away. And that pure faith rises to the top. Boy, with that perspective, we should be welcoming and praying for persecution, but the Bible never tells us to pray and ask for it. That doesn't make you any holier seeking out persecution. In fact, the Bible teaches us that if you are persecuted because you're obnoxious, it's no credit to your account. But persecution will come. I can't tell you when, but and I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but the Bible tells me persecution will come. And it seems to be coming rather rapidly in our own country. So brace yourself in the Lord. Wait patiently, confidently that He'll return. And quietly trust in Him and be careful that we don't turn on one another. We are not the enemy. We are family. Amen? Amen. James has come full circle now in the letter. He opened his letter, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, whole, mature, 
consistent like your God, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge persecution is a reality for our brothers and sisters around the globe. We admit in our weakness that we are afraid of it. We'd rather be ignorant of it. And yet that is not the solution to hide from it. So we pray for our brothers and sisters who are enduring active persecution. To protect them and strengthen them and give them the peace of God that passes all understanding. And Lord, we pray for ourselves as times are changing in our country that if it be your will that our country would turn, repent, seek your face, humble themselves before your word before any more damage is done. And if persecution does come, Lord, that we would remain faithful, steadfast, confident in you and in your love and in your resurrection. We will maintain our testimony, maintain our joy, standing firm in the truth, building our house on obedience to Christ. Lord, thank you that your word equips us for everything we need for life and godliness. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.